Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. I'm Elizabeth Crane, and today I am brewing a potion and cackling ominously. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and I'm standing near a mirror and scrubbing viciously at my hands. And today we're talking about the 2021 film adaptation of Macbeth, uh, directed by Joel Cohen. But we're very excited because today we have a guest who's actually an expert in the field and not just a silly little college student with silly opinions. We have Professor Catherine Schwarz, a professor of English and Gender and Sexuality, who has written the books What You Will, Gender, Contract, and Shakespearean Social Space, as well as Tough Love, Amazon Encounters in the English Renaissance. Thank you so much for being on. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So the official title of this film is The Tragedy of Macbeth, and it's obviously an adaptation of the Shakespeare play. Um, it was directed, and it says also written by Joel Cohen, but I'm not clear on what he wrote, but <laughs> apparently he wrote things. Right. Yeah. That's important. He wrote that. I think it's fun to note that Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand are both in this film. Um, love them. The movie starts off with a, giant with a giant title card that just says when, and then is a completely black screen. We then hear the witches talking about whether they should meet again, and say that they will meet on the heath after the battle to meet Macbeth. So then the screen goes completely white, and we start seeing the actual characters. There's battle, and we learn from characters commenting on the battle that... Uh, Macbeth and Banquo are sort of the heroes of this battle, and the King of Scotland named Duncan says that Macbeth should be given the Thane of Cawdor's title because the Thane of Cawdor betrayed them. We then see um, all three witches, who are all played by Catherine Hunter, um, talking to to herself, and they're all curled up in the sand. They're talking about killing people, and then one of them says Macbeth is coming. We then see both Macbeth and Banquo walk up to the witches and question what they are. We then see the actress standing in a puddle with two reflections of her in it, so then it looks like there are three of her. Um, they say, Hail Macbeth, Queen of Cawdor, and says that they'll, he'll be king soon. Um, they also say that Banquo is, is both more and less great than Macbeth, because he will not be king, but his children will be. We now then see three figures of the witches, with no reflections of the pool. But two of them have their backs turned. Macbeth asks for more information because he's not Thane of Cawdor or King, but the witches just walk away. We then see Macbeth and Banquo talk about how they're confused about the prophecies and they seem to doubt the truth. Then we finally get the title card because it's so dramatic and trendy to put the title card like 20 minutes into the movie. <laughs> so then Ross shows up and tells Macbeth that he's become Thane of Cawdor because Duncan sent him as a messenger, and Macbeth and Banquo start talking about, oh, maybe the prophecy is true, though. Then see Lady Macbeth, love her, and she's reading a letter from Macbeth telling her about the witch's prophecy and him becoming Thane of Cawdor. She burns the letter and says that Macbeth is too kind to become great and that he needs ambition. She then throws off the burning letter. Then, back at the castle, Lady Macbeth basically declares that she is going to kill Duncan, or that she's going to get Macbeth to do it. And she gives a speech about how she wants to be cruel, so she essentially is saying she can't act like a woman if she wants to accomplish her goals. 
Macbeth shows up and wakes her up, and they have these conversations about, oh, Duncan's coming, and Lady Macbeth is like, you should kill him. Duncan then shows up, um, and we see Macbeth trying to figure out whether he should uh, murder Duncan or not, because he doesn't want to commit murder when he's the host, um, and says he has ambition but no motive. Um, Lady Macbeth comes looking for him and tells him that he's being a coward and that he should get what he wants because it's possible to achieve becoming king. Then what's really, one of her lines, what's really fun is that she says that he won't be a man unless he does this and that she would kill her child while it was suckling rather than turn back from something she had sworn to do. Macbeth then says that she's so courageous that Lady Macbeth would only have male children. That's so how that works. (laughs) So Macbeth starts walking towards Duncan's room that night, and he's like, is this a dagger that I see before me? And, you know, maybe he's hallucinating, but in this movie, it turns out it's the door handle because it's shaped like a dagger, which is so fun. Uh, And then he kills Duncan by... Like, putting his hand over his mouth and then stabbing him. At the same time, Lady Macbeth wakes up because of the owl of an owl screech, um, which she says means that Macbeth has succeeded. Lady Macbeth is afraid that the guards will wake up, and she hopes that Macbeth framed the guards. However, when Macbeth comes back, is clearly feeling extremely guilty and has taken the daggers back with him, even though he was, you know, as mentioned before, supposed to use them to frame the guards. Lady Macbeth then orders him to go back, to put them next to the guards and smear them with the blood. When Macbeth refuses to go, she goes instead, saying that she's not afraid to get her hands dirty. We then see Macbeth try to wash his hands and says that they'll never seem clean again. The next morning, Macduff and Malcolm, who's the heir of Duncan, and a few other nobles show up, and Macbeth and Lady Macbeth stage this dramatic performance that they're so upset that the king has died, And Macbeth kills the guards because he says he's so angry at them for killing the king. Uh, And as Malcolm and his brother Donald Bain watch this, they say that they're worried that they'll also be targeted by the murderer if the murderer is targeting the royal family, so they decide to flee. Macduff then says that the guards killed Duncan, um, but because Malcolm and Donald Bain had both fled, they seem a little suspicious. He also says that Macbeth is being crowned in Dunsmane, but Macduff is headed home. He then rides away, but then we see the same actress, Catherine Hunter, who plays the witches, now playing an old man, muttering ominously to himself, and says that unnatural things are afoot. Mm, Yes, good and dramatic. (laughs) So then we see Banquo sort of considering what it means that Macbeth has become king, just like the witches said. And he tells Macbeth that he's going to leave, um, even though there's a feast that night. But he'll be back for the feast, he says. Uh, And he says that he'll bring his son Fleance with him. Macbeth then hires two murderers who secretly kill Banquo and his son Fleance that night. The murderers that Macbeth hires then fight Banquo and eventually stab him. And as Banquo's dying, he commands Fleance to run, which Fleance does. 
That night, Macbeth holds a feast, and he says he's so sad that Banquo isn't there. Uh, and then he leaves the feast and talks to the murderers, and they reassure him that Banquo is dead, but they tell him that his son Fleance escaped. Later at the feast, <laughs> Macbeth thinks he sees Banquo down the hallway, and he's like starts screaming him and following the ghost. But as the camera zooms out, we see that it's just a bird in the room, which Lady Macbeth lets up. Now there's a title card that says tomorrow, and Macbeth sees the witches again and asks for more prophecy. He then sees the face of a young boy in the pool who tells Macbeth to beware a Macduff. A second face appears in the pool to tell Macbeth that none a woman born can harm him. Macbeth says that he will he will still kill Macduff, but isn't as worried about it at, anymore. Then we see a third face in the pool, this time wearing a crown, which is very, very worrying to Macbeth. And this face says that Macbeth will not be overthrown until the Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane. The witches then disappear, and so does the pool. Lady Macbeth enters to tell Macbeth that Macduff has fled to England, and... She also says she didn't see the witches, even though they must have walked right past her. Lady Macbeth then sits down tiredly and notices that her hair is starting to fall out. We then see Ross uh, saying that Macbeth plans to attack Macduff in England. We also then see Ross again talking to Lady Macduff um, as Macduff's kids run around. There's a whole scene between Lady Macduff and her son um, about Macduff's death, while the son insists that his father, Macduff, is not dead. They then talk about being traitors. We then see the Macduff family being under attack while two guys arrive and ask where Macduff is. Then everyone dies and they throw Macduff's son off the the second floor. The scene changes to Macduff and Malcolm starting to uh, form a resistance against Macbeth in uh, England in a forest which we later learn is Burnham Wood. Um, and they discuss how Macbeth was once seen as honest, but is now a tyrant. Ross arrives and tells Macduff that Lady Macduff had died, leading to Macduff swearing vengeance against Macbeth. We then see Lady Macbeth again, um, standing on the world's most dramatic cliff edge. Oh, it's so delightful. (laughs) Um, We see a servant and doctor gossip about her as she sleepwalks every night, writing something down and then sealing it. Lady Macbeth walks down the castle stairs in a nightgown with a candle, and as a drop of rain falls on her hand, she says, out, damn spot. She then says that her hands can never be clean and starts sobbing. Soon, she worries about Banquo rising from the dead, and the doctor says that she needs a priest, not a doctor. And as she heads back to bed, she seems to stare straight at them, talking about her as she says, what's done cannot be undone. The battle between uh, the resistance in England and Macbeth has now started, and at his castle, Dun- uh, which is at Dunsinane, Macbeth mocks a servant who has arrived to tell him that the army is outside, and he says that he is ready to fight. And the next scene, we then see Malcolm declaring that all of his soldiers should cut down a limb from the trees of the wood and carry it with them. In the play, it's mentioned that it's to disguise how many people are with them, but it's not mentioned during the movie. They just have branches. That's fun. I mean, if you saw a bunch of branches walking towards you, I'd be a little scared. 
I would think it was the ints from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Which would be scary. Yeah. Back at the castle, Macbeth yells about defending it as he walks the ramparts. Lady Macbeth gets up from her bed um, and starts sleepwalking again as soldiers run by. And the troops start arriving outside the castle. Ross sees Lady Macbeth sleepwalking and walks towards her, but the scene shifts to Macbeth, who is told that Lady Macbeth has just died, and we see her body, uh, which is fallen at the bottom of the stairs. We then see Macbeth go into the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow monologue, which is amazing, um, and which he essentially mourns her death and how life is short and often meaningless. We then also see a servant run up to Macbeth to tell him that Burnham Wood has started to move. And he's worried because if Burnham Wood came to Dunsinane, it means that he can be overthrown. He commands his troops to get ready and sits sadly on his throne. We then see Seward, and Macbeth says that he doesn't care if Seward attacks because only a man, not a woman born, can kill him. And then they engage in fight. He disarms Seward by knocking him over and then stabs him with his own sword. Macbeth runs into Macduff on the ramparts, and Macbeth again brags that Macduff can't kill him, but Macduff says that he was from his mother's womb untimely ripped, which makes Macbeth realize that Macduff could kill him. Macbeth says he doesn't want to fight, uh, so Macduff calls him a coward, and Macbeth determines he'll try his best, even though all the circumstances of the witch's prophecy have now come true, and they have an epic sword fight. Uh, during which Macduff knocks the crown off of Macbeth's head and it clatters to the ground dramatically. And Macbeth bothers to like bend over and pick it up mid-fight. And predictably, this is a terrible strategic move. So Macduff kills him while he's putting it back on. Um, and there was very on-the-nose symbolism <laughs> in this that I was not my favorite. Um, and then the crown falls off the side of the rampart where Ross picks it up and brings it to Malcolm along with Macbeth's head. Malcolm is crowned and everyone hails him as King of Scotland. And then in an end scene that is not in the original play, um, Ross gives a coin to the random old man played by the same actress as the witches who is keeping Fleant safe. And that is what happens in Macbeth, <laughs> in case you hadn't read it on Sparknotes already. <laughs> Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot, so we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. First of all, I love how they decided to shoot this movie in black and white because it is, like, the most melodramatic thing ever, so I feel like the black and white just adds to the feel, the drama. No, I totally agree. I really enjoyed the black and white. It was, as you said, dramatic, and I don't think it would have worked as well if it was color. I don't know. It's just, I think the high contrast in the film made me feel really drawn into the characters, um, and... Like, it, in a way, it made me feel more invested. Like, I, I don't know why exactly, but... I feel like it's because it's so unusual for modern movies that you're mm -hmm. like, oh, this is different. It's mm -hmm. fun. Yeah, I agree. And I think it, like, fit with the whole aesthetic, you know, like, even the ending scene with the crows and everything. 
Um, it, it was fun. And I don't know. I could, I could make this a whole statement about something like so beyond, you know, like the black and white is a representation about how morality isn't just black and white. (laughs) It's really just gray. (laughs) It's interesting too, that if you're in black and white, one of the things you can't see is blood as blood, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of film versions and stage versions of this play really want to emphasize the blood. Um, yeah. And so it's interesting to think even that moment when the raindrop falls on Lady Macbeth's hand, you, you may know that it's a raindrop, but you can't visually distinguish water mm-hmm. from blood. And this is a kind uh-huh. of interesting choice to not emphasize the bodies as damaged in the usual way. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I really like that way of looking at it as you said, it's really, it it once again blurs the line too between reality and, you know, whatever guilt Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are going through throughout the film. Um, Because, I mean, with the ghosts and everything, they're seeing their guilt and everything. It's Um, also like, vaguely like the correct time period for a Shakespeare play, which I really like because I personally don't like when the Shakespeare plays are like in World War II now. I don't like that. I like when they're wearing dramatic cloaks and they have swords. That's the best version of a Shakespeare play to me. I just, so I liked that even though like the buildings sort of looked almost like Art Deco sometimes. Like when Banquo was standing between the columns, Mm -hmm. they definitely looked like a more modern building, but they kept the, like, costumes and the way people were, like, interacting with each other very, like, yield times. Mm -hmm. No, I really did like the Art Deco feel, I think. Like, I just liked all the hallways and doors. Oh, the hallways and the doors were so good. (laughs) The random fog. Yes! The fog! (laughs) Like, when the door handle is a dagger, that is my favorite interior design choice now. (laughs) That was really smart. I like the way they played upon, you know, these iconic monologues and lines from Macbeth. You know, the dagger in the door when he's like... Is this the dagger that I see before me? (laughs) Um, I also really liked his tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech because I feel like, you know, usually it's pretty dramatic um, but here I mean, it's dramatic but it's also like, I think the way Denzel Washington played it was just like this acceptance um, a solemn acceptance of how life doesn't have meaning sometimes and I thought it was just it was really, I think it added it was very the word in my head but I can't say it I can spell it P-O-I-N poignant (laughs) yeah and one of the things that does that is it's so clearly in this film a direct response to his wife's death Mm -hmm. right and and that is true that is what prompts that speech usually it's the news of his wife's death but Mm -hmm. this film and having her body actually appear and this film interests me for that relationship in general because there's a weird kind of tenderness between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth that is really at odds with the brutality of all the other relationships. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what to do with that. I mean, they're embedded in this horrific murder plot that's also a treason plot, and yet their marriage has this weird affect that, that works really well. Mm-hmm. So the idea that his sense of futility would not just be some universal statement about life, which is how that 
monologue that soliloquy is often quoted out of context Mm -hmm. but a response to loss you know Mm -hmm. this is lost to me so now what does anything else mean so it's an interesting mixing of the general and the very personal and the very particular yeah no i i agree and i mean it's as you said it's an interesting way to also not interesting but it's it was nice not I don't know if nice is the right word, but it was cool to seeing them represent his grief in that way. Because I feel like, you know, when you do lose a loved one, that is something you feel. Um, and it was, it was it was a different take than what I was used to. Yeah, and it, it connects him more directly to Macduff, who mm-hmm. uh, lost his whole family. Yeah, right that extraordinary moment when, you know, he's told you must bear it like a man. And he says, but I must also feel it like a man, mm-hmm. right? Macduff with Macbeth at that moment right toward the end of the film is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. This so may go back to your it's not all black and white. Kind yeah. of <laughs> oh yeah. my god, it's such deep symbolism. <laughs> the whole movie. <laughs> no, I really agree with your point though about um, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth having uh, a really nice relationship in this movie, which I really like how you pointed out the contrast between their relationship and everyone else in the play, because no one else in the play seems like they even have, like, a good friendship. Like, everyone is so cold to each other all the time. I feel like Macbeth and Banquo have, like, a little bit of friendship at the beginning, but then Macbeth is like, actually, I think I will murder him. So that, like, immediately disappears, but we keep a pretty, like, decently functional relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth for, like, a while, Mm -hmm. Um, and you can tell how upset he is when she dies. I mean, ultimately, they're a partnership, and they, I mean, they help each other murder people, you know? (laughs) They, They really work together for their goal of him becoming the king, and I agree. I feel like, you know, when I read Macbeth, it was, like, what, junior year in high school, and I feel like when I viewed their relationship then, it was, like, um... I think I kind of viewed Macbeth, Lady Macbeth as the mastermind and, you know, Macbeth's just kind of listening to her orders. So I felt like here it's just a lot more of a partnership than how I had visualized it when I first read Macbeth. Um, so I think, you know, this film and just kind of revisiting this now years later, it's making me think about relationships and also the characters much differently. Yeah, it's, there's a wonderfully strange essay from the 1950s that argues that Lady Macbeth is the ideal good executive's wife, like she supports her man, right? <laughs> and, and what I think the author entirely fails to realize is this is a decidedly odd version of marriage, right? The author is going for the absolutely normative. The wife supports the husband. Yeah. But supports him in what? Murder and treason, right? And I think this film is going at that much more directly and saying if this is the successful version of marriage, it's a very queer one. I mean, it's a very odd thing Mm -hmm. to map heterosexual marriage as most successful when it's based on murder and treason, right? So there's there's an interesting kind (laughs) of thing being done with emotion there where all the, quote, good guys seem almost like automata for a lot of this, like robots for a lot of this film. And the bad guys, the murderers, have this human bond Mm -hmm but it's based on something that is fundamentally understood to be monstrous. Yeah. So marriage comes out of this film looking both very successful and very strange. (laughs) And I like that about this. I like it that they don't limit 
the playing with gender, playing with sexuality to just Lady Macbeth or just the witches or just eroticized male bonding, that to actually mm-hmm. take that into marriage and say, marriage can look queer too, you mm-hmm. know, if it functions, but it functions on monstrous terms, what do we do, right? Yeah. That's so interesting. I never thought about that. No, that's so interesting. What do we do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In a sense, we mourn the loss of that bond at the end of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, we're with We Beth. really feel for him. Yeah. Yeah. And... Does that mean we think he's a good guy or a good king? Probably not. No. But anytime a film makes you feel loss with someone you're not supposed to attach to, mm-hmm. um, which I guess connects to your overarching theme of horror movies, which often attach you not so much to the people who are killed, but to the monstrous being that kills oh, them. Oh, yeah. Right? We love a good horror movie villain yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and they always come back, right? Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. they can be relied on to return, so you don't have to, to feel that loss. True, true. Like that one part at the end of Halloween when Mike Myers is like dead and then they're like, wait, (laughs) we can turn this into a franchise. I just know it. (laughs) A lot of those long running franchises were meant to be one offs. Yeah. And so they had to put some thought into how do we bring him back? And then it got easy. They were just like, oh, we just bring him back. You know, (laughs) we don't need an explanation for this. No, he just shows up. He's fine. Murders a couple people, disappears back in time for the next installment. Yeah, they realized audiences would perfectly happily accept the return of the apparently dead. You yeah. know, they, we were good. <laughs> the protagonists never really make it back, though. They're not. They're not doing great. No, they're, they're pretty they dead. The villains of the next one. Uh, oh yeah, yes, this true, is an interesting turn. Right? <laughs> like Julia and Hellraiser. I mean, she's not really the protagonist, but then she's yeah. like the main villain in the second one. You're like, how did this happen? Yeah. I was also thinking about Pearl and. Oh my Max God, Pearl! Yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like Maxine is definitely going to be the villain in the like third movie. Yes, I feel. Yeah, that yeah. Makes sense. There's no. <laughs> there's no way. Like the the way she was acting at the end of that movie. It's a little sus. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then you might sort of wonder about, is that the Fleance role for the sequel to Macbeth, right? Huh. Because he's... Is he going to continue this lineage of carnage and violence? And in a sense, he has to, right? I mean, yeah. if he is supposed to be the next king, and mm-hmm. this that we were talking about earlier, where this film actually emphasizes that he's being actively protected and sheltered so he can become that, which mm-hmm. the play does not... Um, but how is that going to happen? Well, mm-hmm. in a sense, it can only happen through further treason, further murder. You know, mm-hmm. So Fleance, the protected, valued heir to the throne, is not on the throne. He's not in any sense the heir to the throne. No. Yeah, so, wait, I had a question about that. Like, why does he become the next king and not Malcolm's kids? Like, just because the witches say so? Like, well, historically, because this play was written or King James I, who traced his his lineage back to Banquo. Oh, okay. Banquo is an actual historical. So that's the but the historical inf- in explanation is almost never the most interesting one. Um, <laughs> dramatically, I think precisely to remind us that it was really easy to get rid of Duncan, and it was really easy to get rid of Macbeth. Actually, yeah. there's something about the idea that the king is a stable entity that mm-hmm. is taking a beating in this play, and I think this film really highlights that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, should we kill Duncan? Well, Why not? it's hard to decide to do that, yeah. but once you've decided, it's not hard to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the prophecy that makes Macbeth feel invulnerable, we know already that prophecies never work the way that people receiving <laughs> no. them think they're going to. So we know from the moment of that prophecy that it's going to go wrong for Macbeth. Um, mm-hmm. And Malcolm, Hale, King of Scotland, what has Malcolm done? Right? What has he done to deserve that? 
Um, <laughs> except no, he, he hasn't. McDuffie. This is the thing. All the that, M names get me confused. Yeah. <laughs> but this is, you know, in a way, Macduff is in the position Macbeth was in when Duncan named yeah. Malcolm his heir. Macbeth is saying, well, I just won this war for you. Why am I not named your heir? Yeah. And Macduff is in that same position at the end. Like, Why is Malcolm on the throne yeah. when I just took care of this problem? And then there's also Fleon. So there's this kind of multiplication of people who seem like heroes in this play. Mm-hmm. But if there were a sequel... What would they seem like? They might be your villains who, you know, come back from a previous film, but not in the same role. And Mm -hmm. this play has always been seen as a setup for a cycle. Mm -hmm. But I think the film really stresses that through Fleance, but also through Macduff. I mean, Macduff is the figure who's kind of, you know, really good at what he does. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm is the figure about whom we know almost nothing. Yeah. So that Hail King of Scotland moment, you know. Remind me, does Fleance know about the prophecy at this point, or is he just being sheltered? I don't think he knows. I don't think in this film version he does. Okay. Some some versions I've seen cheat a little and have him either um, talking aside with Banquo, so you can assume Banquo is mm. telling him, or okay. there's some other way he learns. I think this film leaves, if I'm remembering correctly, leaves that opaque, that, okay. that it's going to happen, but he does not yet know, know. that this is his destiny. Mm. So... Um, and again, the question of how does he move towards that destiny exactly. is left wide open. Because, like, had, you know, it's, I feel like this is such a common question, but, like, had Macbeth never heard that prophecy, would he even be in the place he was at the end? You know, if Fleance never hears the prophecy, will he even get to that point? Because, like, I, I mean, I think the prophecy definitely is a motivating factor. It's like, oh, yeah. like, if I'm yeah. already going to be there, why not do it sooner? It's very common to talk about this play as the classic tragic flaw play, right? Mm-hmm. Macbeth's tragic flaw is ambition. But mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. We don't know mm-hmm. that it would ever have occurred to him to do anything other than continue to serve Duncan, yeah. if not for the prophecy. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to put all the responsibility for ambition on Macbeth when he doesn't control the terms of ambition? Yeah. And people will then say, well, but Lady Macbeth would have told him to be king. But again, if he hadn't written her the letter about the prophecy, she we don't know. Known. Yeah. So. Yeah. The impulse to say, oh, we know that it would have gone this way. We don't. No. Um, that's where this this film's choice to make the witches one figure and yeah. a really eerie figure. Really yeah. Wonderfully eerie. Um, what you do with the witches in a production of this play matters probably almost more than anything else mm-hmm. because they can be anything from incidental almost oh Macbeth was already headed that way and they just Mm -hmm. helped to there's one very famous production where they are up above the stage stage production the whole time and they're holding puppet sticks with strings coming down so fun and the strings aren't attached to the characters but Mm -hmm. the witches spend the whole production just moving the puppet sticks and that's really fun I like that that. (laughs) and I think this one tends more in that direction yeah this figure of the witch who is both one body and three bodies um Mm -hmm. you should be women and yet your beards forbid me to interpret it you know multiple genders being attached to one body that is really three bodies that morphs back into one body um Mm -hmm. it's really giving us a sense of that eeriness has a power not just mm-hmm. for us watching but for Macbeth listening yeah 
Yeah, that was something I loved about this film. Like, when we were deciding to do it for the podcast, we were like, oh, it's a little bit of a stretch to put it on a horror movie podcast. It'll be fun, though. And then I got to the witches scene, and I was like, oh, we're good. (laughs) This counts. It's fine. And that prophecy takes on the classic horror movie feel where part of you wants to yell, don't go in the house or don't go in the basement. (laughs) But, you know, you know you're really there to see them do exactly that. Oh, yeah, of course. So there's something if you you buy the prophecy that it's going to, inevitably lead to doom Mm -hmm. it works exactly like that moment when you know those protagonists are about to do something deeply stupid and fatal (laughs) and theoretically you don't want it and people have been in theaters where people have yelled don't go in the house right people did that when we went to see x people were yelling don't go in the house at the scene yeah it's a very it's because it is a kind of human impulse to say no that's stupid don't do that or but we know we're there to see it happen and that so i think the the, this particular version of the witches really works to tilt this film towards a version of horror. Mm-hmm. We want what we know we should not want, and that's and one yeah. of the things that horror films do to us: is yeah. make us desire something that we're kind of horrified at ourselves for desiring. Yeah. They did cut out the silly little song the witches sing, though. I was so sad. What about the silly little song? <laughs> yeah, parts of that second witch's appearance often get cut. They were almost certainly later additions by a different uh, playwright. That doesn't really matter. I mean, they were added because people wanted more witches. But I think me. people often want the witches to stay really creepy. And it's yeah. hard to keep them creepy if they're dancing and singing. So well, I it can be done. That, I've seen it done, but it's but hard. <laughs> alternatively, have we considered how fun it is when they sing a little song? <laughs> well, yes. And, and it could be genuinely horrifying that they can be playful. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. they're they're playing, but they're playing with people's lives. Mm-hmm. Right. And really more accurately with their deaths. Yeah. So I think having the witches be cheerful can also I've seen this done where the witches were young, attractive, cheerful and just kind of hanging out, having a good time. And that was really kind of horrifying yeah. in itself, you know. <laughs> They're having a great time, and all these people are dying. That's why they're the most fun characters. (laughs) Player for the first time in middle school. And I love the witches so much that I, not on purpose, but because I'd read it so many times, completely memorized Act 4, Scene 1 of this play. Because I was a weird child, okay? (laughs) Don't ask too many questions. But I loved the scene. I would just, like run all over the house being like hee 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 I was a witch <laughs> like deranged behavior for like a 14 year old child uh, and I just loved the witches and I, I would read the scene over and over and I like drew art of it I'm not a good artist so it's bad <laughs> art but stick witches yeah yeah, yeah. That's so cute. Oh it was that. weird it was not no. cute it was strange <laughs> Okay, so another thing that I really like about the witches is that the play describes them as sort of like genderqueer figures. Banquo says that uh, he wants to like ascribe them as a woman, but they have beards or something like that. Um, I did write down the quote, and then I didn't bother to get out the copy of the play I have in my backpack, and now I'm too lazy to do it. You should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret it. Mm. So, there you go. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> um... And I really like the way that they did it in this production. It kind of irritates me that in not productions of Macbeth I've seen, really, but in, like, 
like reception of Macbeth or like other things that mention Macbeth, they like weirdly sexualize the witches. And I'm like, this is not my favorite thing. Say more about why sexualizing the witches doesn't work for you. Uh, I really like interpreting them as genderqueer figures. So having them just be very like stereotypically feminine, I feel like doesn't explore the characters um, like in the direction that I would if I was doing like a production of the play. Yeah, this is where our modern perspective really comes into view because if you hypersexualized and hyperfeminized women in the Renaissance, they would precisely be seen as genderqueer because there was an idea that women who were excessively sexual actually became more like men and men who were excessively sexual and heterosexual became more like women, that you became what you desired in effect. Mm -hmm. So they were much more fluid about their understanding of how easily an excess of one gendered configuration could tip over into an association with another. But for us, we see hyper-femininity, hyper-sexualized femininity, and we think women, right? We don't, we don't have that kind of porousness of categories. So, But this was interesting because is it, is it genderqueer to have three bodies in one body? Um, it is certainly queer in some sense, right? But what happens to gender through that, do you think? Mm, interesting. I wasn't really thinking about that when I said I thought this was genderqueer. More like the fact that she's um, dressed very, like, androgynously. She has, like, a hood up, um, and you can't really see, like... Her like, facial Yeah, facial. like, a lot of times she's, like shot from like below or like above at like weird angles um and then she also the same actress plays the old man um but i do think it's very interesting to point out that then also they did the thing where she's like also three people yeah no i agree because then that also makes me think about like gender queer and gender in like other cultures um mm -hmm. like for example if we, if we look at the native community with two spirit or like um, in Hinduism, there's the feminine energy and the masculine em energy, and there are, like, some deities that have both of them. So I do see how, you know, having three different bodies in one is essentially, like, three different energies in one, and how that would also play into genderqueerness. Yeah, and that wonderful scene where the, that you highlighted earlier where we see her facing forward and two others with their backs to us, and mm -hmm. we don't know what we would see if they turned around, right? Yeah. That's a moment of sort of baiting the audience and saying mm -hmm. you're not gonna see but how can you not wonder right? yeah yeah i really love that also it's like a horror movie moment because it's like when you're like oh what's going on and then they like show you what's going on you're like no <laughs> like um like in hereditary when you're like what's going on at the treehouse and then they show you what's going oh, on at the treehouse like, oh, and you're wow. like oh no <laughs> <laughs> it is true anytime in that context you find yourself wanting to know what's going on you realize that probably you don't actually want to know <laughs> except you do right yeah, it's that, yeah that split again that horror movies produce in us so i was looking through the actual play this morning and i was like how is this different from the movie and the main changes that we found was that fleance is more of a focus because he comes back at the end and the old man is like protecting him and also ross just like keeps showing up they gave Ross a lot more scenes, and I don't really know why, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts about this, because I really, I didn't know why he was there. Yeah, I mean, I suspect it's to give one more focal point to the film, that is to say, if you just kept rotating different thanes without names into the various <laughs> functions that need to be fulfilled, it might... I'm, 
as I said earlier, my guess is they got a good actor for the Ross role and thought, let's do more with him. But, um, but yeah, the Fleance thing is interesting because he too, as you say, gets more foregrounded. And the idea that Ross, who is theoretically loyal to Macbeth, would already fairly early on be protecting Fleance, that's, you know... And Ross in general getting more to do, maybe emphasizing because he is not actually working for Macbeth as he claims to be, right? It might actually um, heighten the sense earlier of the fragility of Macbeth's power, right? That even someone who is named for us and who we are seen as part of Macbeth's entourage. theoretically entourage yeah. is already not carrying out his will. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The other thing that got a lot of attention when this film came out um, as a difference from the play, which I'm not sure why it was marked that way, but it was repeatedly, was the age of Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand as actors, mm-hmm. you know, that, yeah. oh, they are much older than the, they are in the play. I'm like, we have no idea how old they are in the play. So I don't know how that got marked as a difference from the play. Yeah. It's certainly a difference from other productions, but it interested me that that kept coming up as, oh, it's a radical revision of the play to make them so much older. And I was like, but the play tells us nothing about how old they are. So, yeah, here we go. Yeah, I actually almost wrote that down as something to talk about. And then I, like, looked through the play and I was like, never mind, it doesn't say how old they were. So, like, I had the exact same thought process that you did where I was like, oh, they're kind of older than, like, most stuff I've seen. Then I was like, who cares? But it makes me wonder why people assumed that they they should be younger. Yeah. I mean, people loved the casting. The casting got huge props. Oh, they were great. I really thought they were You cannot go wrong with those two actors. But... And Denzel Washington's ability to speak verse is just a gorgeous thing to listen to. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, you were no, I was going to say, I wonder if people associate ambition with younger people. That's interesting. And because ambition is such a huge thing in the play and the movie, like, I wonder if people would just associate Macbeth with being younger because he has so much ambition to being king because he would rule for so many years. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's about ambition. Maybe it's about sex, right? That this has mm-hmm. to be a highly sexualized relationship for her manipulation of his masculinity to work mm-hmm. but of course this film puts all of that in question does it have to be sexualized does it have to be a manipulation you know mm-hmm. um she certainly has all the lines about be a man right yeah um and indeed her own lines about the you know come to my woman's breast and turn my milk to gall you know yeah so regendering both herself and her path there's no reason that has to be tethered to either sex or manipulation mm-hmm. of in the in the usual sense right that mm-hmm. So, but I think there is something about this has to be a, a sexually charged relationship, and we associate that with youth too. Yeah, wrongly, but we do. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, that was really interesting to see how often um, reviewers of this film came back to the age question, mm-hmm. and as if there were a set age and this violated. Yeah. So I think ambition, yes. I think sex, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, volatility of a relationship, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, I still find myself a little puzzled. That, yeah. that was one of the things people focused on. I wonder also, like, if they're older age because I earlier we had talked about the partnership between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth. I wonder if the fact that they're both older actors impacted, like, subconsciously impacted the way we viewed their relationship as well as being something more tender because they've been together for like the older they are. I feel like I would assume they've been together mm-hmm. longer, so I feel like their partnership would be. A, I wouldn't say stronger, but they would have a better understanding of each other than perhaps if it was like, if they were younger. Yeah. So that moment when Lady Macbeth reads the letter and immediately knows 
she's going to have to work to make this happen. Mm-hmm. She's too full of the milk of human kindness, right? That in a way makes more sense if we think of this as a marriage of some duration that mm-hmm. she would already know. Well, he's going to want to do this, but he's also not going to want to do this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I actually saw one review that said just outright, this is a couple who have aged together in marriage and chosen not to have children. We don't know that. We don't know that from the play. We don't know that from the film. They're not talking about kids, really. Yeah, yeah. but again, the the kind of assumption that we already know something from the play Mm -hmm. that the film then disrupts, um, even though we can't find it anywhere in the play. I'm always interested in these symptomatic moments when people clearly have a fixed idea of what's in the play. Mm -hmm. And it's not there. It's not, you know, so... It, this casting did disrupt people in a, in a good way. I mean, they, they yeah. celebrated it, but they were also really interested in the... And it's interesting to think about whether an older Lady Macbeth then has more space to play with gender, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that this is precisely not a play about you know marriage as inherent and presumptive reproductivity, right? Mm-hmm. This is so... All those lines where she's reshaping her body in order to be able to act Mm -hmm. might in a way make more sense if you put her not in the, you know, young bride category. Yeah. But in the... As a mature older woman. Yeah. 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 Who understands the full range of places that power might come from. Yeah. 100%. I feel like that's just a totally different perspective now. Yeah. So let's talk more about Lady Macbeth because... She is an icon. She is a great fictional character. Um, I just, I feel like whenever I talk to my friends about Shakespeare, all of them collectively are like, oh, Lady Macbeth. Like, I don't know if that says something about my friend group or (laughs) what, but like every time my friends and I are talking about Shakespeare, we always come back and we're like, oh, Lady Macbeth is like the best character. Um, So... (laughs) I mean, I think it's because um, she is so down to commit murder, and it just makes her so much more compelling, because she's, like, ready to get her hands dirty. Like, she gives the speech when Macbeth, or it's not really a speech, but she has, like, a couple lines when Macbeth comes back, and he's like, oh, I didn't leave the, like, daggers yeah. on the guards, and she's like, I'll do it. Yeah. So I, I just think she's she's so fun. I, I mean, I agree. I think, like, she's my in the play um i i just i think it's because you know like i'm gonna admit i have not read that many shakespeare plays i've read three (laughs) (laughs) no wait i have a point that goes off of this continue um but like i feel like whenever i think about literature from that specific time period i imagine a more demure woman um who like this is just based off of my own biases and assumptions You know, so when I think of Lady Macbeth, I see this powerful woman who knows what she wants and she will do what she wants to do. So it really, it changes my perspective about literature from that time period, which is like fully based on my assumptions. Because like, granted, I have not read that much literature from that time period, but it, I feel like she sticks with me then because like, she's talking about things that I would assume to be more masculine in a way and it just it's like a whole new take on a woman for me (laughs) 
Yeah, okay, so my point is that I think a lot of people have that opinion, and I think it's because of which Shakespeare plays are in high school curriculums. Mm, absolutely. Because all we ever read is, like, Romeo and Juliet. Juliet is for sure boring. Hamlet, Ophelia's kind of boring. Gertrude's, like, kind of interesting, but all you ever talk about in high school is, like, the Oedipus complex, so mm. that, like, <laughs> marks her out as an interesting character. Uh, Julius Caesar... I don't even remember what women are in that play. Probably Caesar's wife doesn't do anything if I don't remember who was there. So I think it's because of the set of Shakespeare plays that are given to high schoolers, which are what probably most of my friends have read. Lady Macbeth is like the only interesting female character. I think there's a lot to that. And I think it's also that you will never read a Renaissance author playwright other than Shakespeare in high school. And so we entirely (laughs) miss the whole thing field in which women were doing all kinds of crazy, violent, intense, powerful things. Shakespeare didn't get hugely interested in fully adult women who had actual power until pretty late in his career. Mm -hmm. And even then, with the exception of Lady Macbeth and Cleopatra, they're important characters, but they're often not really central. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of his colleagues were focusing their plays on women and on women who participated fully in revenge, who nation states or city states you know so you get a weird slice both Mm -hmm. carolyn because of exactly because of exactly what you were saying about the um you know the subset that is taught on the assumption that i don't even know why macbeth is in that subset that's always fascinated (laughs) me it's It's like because i didn't read any of those i read really what did you read i read macbeth merchant of venice and then we talked about it earlier the one on the island the Tempest. The Tempest. The Tempest. Yeah, yeah, that will not give you a sense of strong women. No. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> that one lady, what is she doing? I think she's just in the cave the whole time. Yeah. It wasn't my favorite. <laughs> yeah, so between selecting your Shakespeare for you and then not really telling you that anyone else was doing anything at all in the period, we ended yeah. up in a very... They're all young. They're all... Even if they're trying to do make their own choices, things are going to get in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody's going to end up intervening in those choices, maybe mm-hmm. for good, maybe for bad, depending on whether you read Romeo and Juliet or Midsummer Night's Dream. But yeah. you know, you, we did not read Midsummer Night's Dream. It's becoming more common in okay. middle school and high school That's curricula, fun. but it's still yeah. less common I than Romeo and Juliet. Happier. I think the other English class in high school read Midsummer Night's Dream, and we mm-hmm. read Merchant of Venice. But almost everyone reads Romeo and Juliet, which is so odd to me because I'm not sure yeah. what what message. 14-year-olds are supposed to take from that. (laughs) They really said, here, 14-year-olds. I just liked it because we got to act out all the sword fights. Oh, that's fine. And nothing makes me happier than fake sword fighting. (laughs) Except possibly playing the witches from Macbeth. Oh, right. Yeah, that too. (laughs) But yeah, I think Lady Macbeth has always fascinated people. And the idea that that moment when she says, you know, I have a given suck, I've nursed a child, and mm-hmm. if I had promised as you have, I would dash, you know, I would pluck its nipple from my my nipple from its boneless guns and dash its brains out, right? Yeah. And people talk about that moment as if they saw it happen, as if they actually saw a baby being mm-hmm. killed. And the fact that it's just, it's an as if. I mean, she's just yeah. saying it's completely subjunctive. If this had happened, yeah. I would have done this. But people remember that dead baby as if they had watched it being killed. And 
There's something about that power of speech, you know, the power to create an image, mm -hmm. especially since that's the exact moment when Macbeth cannot even talk straight. That extraordinary speech that begins, if it were done, when it were done, to well, it were done quickly. Mm -hmm. You can't even make sense of that as a sentence, right? So he's so far down the rabbit hole, like, can this be done? Should it be done? And she's just saying, not only would I do it, but I would kill the baby if that was what it took. And I think that fascinates us. You yeah. know, that kind of, it's not so much a gender flip as just an expansion of the possibilities of what a woman could, could choose be. to do. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, like, it plays into, I feel like people view women as being maternal. And it's like, mm -hmm. if they have a child, all their focus is on the child. But what's so, it's not even like she's holding the child. She's nope. giving the child nourishment. She's giving it food. And then she hypothetically takes away its entire life which i think is what's so surprising to people it's the complete turnaround from yeah. nourishment of life to death yeah there's another famous article that's just titled how many children had lady macbeth and people tend to quote this title and then say one hopes as few as possible right and so they take that really seriously they really think that this is a woman who would cheerfully murder her children if that's what it took to get things done and as you say that upends a lot assumptions about you know, it doesn't make her a man it makes her a woman who has capacities we do not tend to associate with women mm -hmm. and that's a modern perspective that's not just a renaissance perspective yeah. we still tend to assume that women will be defined by nurture no right? even now i i mean like i feel like there's so much dialogue over what are bad mothers but mm -hmm. then like people do not talk about like fathers as much you know mm -hmm. there's just it's just so associated with each other like it's if I saw this back then, you know, if I was alive back then, I'd be like, whoa. Yep. Now my reaction's still the same. I'm like, whoa. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like, damn. <laughs> Good for you, though. Like, <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> yeah. You know the, the meme that's like, good for her, and it's like the woman like sipping tea? Yeah. Every time I read this play, I'm like, good for her. <laughs> also, the whole sleepwalking scene, I think, you know, I remember reading that for the first time in high school, and I think, I think about that scene a lot, like where she's sleepwalking and then the drop of rain, and she's trying to scrub at her hands. I think about that pretty often. I'm not sure why it really stood out to me that much. I mean, it's a very big scene, I feel, but I I just really love the scene. I think, um, and then like we also see it in Macbeth. Um, where he's also like struggling with the concept, with his grief and his uh, guilt over everything that happens. And I think what was so surprising for her, maybe what was so surprising seeing her go through that was because she was the one at the beginning who was so insistent on killing Duncan and doing all this. So now for her to feel guilt from all of her actions that she was so ready to do before, I think that just really stood out to me because it's like, Oh, you know, like, as time progresses, maybe it, it, like, you've done something in the past that you just, like, completely regret. And, I don't know, just stood out to me. That's all. Yeah, it's always been a scene that has divided people. Because a lot of people, and I'm among them, don't want to see Lady Macbeth reduced to this, mm -hmm. right? Reduced to madness, reduced to guilt. But at the same time, as you say, it carries a very powerful suggestion that you may not understand the meaning of what you have done until you have done it, right? Mm -hmm. And so to say, oh, we'll just kill the king and that will get him out of the way. Mm -hmm. The king is not, you know, anything in 
particular at that moment. He's just an obstacle, right? Mm -hmm. But that moment when she goes up and he's thinking that she might just kill him and she says, had he not resembled my father as he slept, I could have done it. And that's a weird little moment in the middle Mm -hmm. of all this that kind of forecasts that later awareness that, you know, she helped to kill a king, she helped to kill a person. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm, I'm divided on the sleepwalking scene because part of me does not want to see her be anything other than the figure she was at the beginning. Yeah. But part of me really respects that willingness to say, well, sometimes you don't understand consequences until mm-hmm. you're actually bearing them. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, that scene, it's always, it's always complicated in terms of how to do it too. Like yeah. do, are you taking away all her power in that moment or are you giving her a different kind of power? Like mm-hmm. what, what is happening to her in that mm-hmm. scene? Yeah. I think this film did a really nice job with that. Yeah, I really agree that it's like hard to see this character that like we all said we really like her um sort of reap the consequences of what she's done. Um but at the same time like is it unexpected for all the characters to die at the end of a Shakespeare tragedy? I don't know. I feel like if she survived or like didn't face consequences, it would kind of be like tonally incongruent. Um, also, especially in this film, it fulfills our favorite horror movie trope of wandering around a castle in a nightgown with a candelabra, <laughs> which is the most dramatic action you can take at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And this film also gives the added drama of standing on a cliff dramatically. <laughs> Well, there's a wind. Oh, so dramatic. And when there was, like, the silhouette through the, like, canopy around the bed, it was just like the scene in the original Suspiria, where... Have you seen the original Suspiria or only the remake? There's this scene where the mother is, like, behind a bed sheet, and the main character's like, I recognize her breathing, and then she, like, stabs her or something. It just, it reminded me of that for some reason. I'm not really sure why, but something about the way it was, like, shot. I was like, this is, like, Suspiria. I think also something about Lady Macbeth. I feel like I, for some reason, I tend to associate her with a lot of, like, other powerful female characters in, like, horror movies. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, was it Pearl? No, not Pearl. It's one of the movies we watched where I think... The main girl, she was she murdered someone and she faced guilt. And I was like, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, I see you. Um, well, okay, the main character Pearl does murder a lot of people. She's not guilty. No, she's not guilty. So it's not that. Um, who was guilty? Oh, the hunger. It was in the hunger. It was because Sarah is like, I can't be a vampire because I have to murder people. And she murders someone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The ideal plot for any movie. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely, I mean, like I said, I read this book a lot for some reason, or this play, so I definitely, sometimes when I'm watching a horror movie, I'm like, ah, yes, this is just like Lady Macbeth. So, you know, the witches, they're giving out prophecies, and it's so fun, because who doesn't love a good prophecy? It's fun. I like to know the future. Yeah. I'm sure it will have no <laughs> negative implications no. on your life. Uh-uh. Like, well, you can go all the way back to Oedipus Rex and you get, you know, 
the great thing about prophecies is you will only know that you have fulfilled them when you have done everything wrong, right? So <laughs> no one ever understands the prophecy until yeah. they look back and say, oh, damn, that's what that meant, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And Macbeth has exactly that experience here. He just understands it as entirely clear. Mm-hmm. And of course he's going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. That is the nature of prophecy. Yeah. And they do have to cheat a little on the from his womb untimely ripped, you know, he was still a woman born, you know, there still yeah. had to be a woman there, but, yeah. but prophecies do cheat, you know, they, they are happily, cheerfully telling you, mm-hmm. yes, this is what's going to happen. And you're just not going to understand until yeah. you've done everything you can to either make it come true or avoid it and realized you went down exactly the wrong path. So, <laughs> See, this is why I think the Lord of the Rings solution to no man can kill me is way better because it's actually correct to the prophecy. Because if no man of woman born can kill you and then you were from your mother's womb untimely ripped, like, I don't know. That's yeah. a little wishy-washy. Like, you're still from woman born, I think. But... If no man can kill you and then a woman kills you, that's correct. That's what I was thinking, like a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it also captures the the narrowness of vision, right? Mm-hmm, that when you hear mm-hmm. no man, you think no one. Right. In fact, you're really not thinking correctly at that moment. You should include women in your calculus. Yeah. And I like that one, too, because it's a good kind of zinger on the assumption that only men could kill you. So mm-hmm, if no man can mm-hmm. kill you, no one can kill you. It's like, yeah. You forgot about it. A large segment of the population there. <laughs> Roughly fifty so. percent of the population could still kill you. Yeah. No, this reminds me. There's this one Indian myth um, where there's this king. You know, he gets a prophecy, and it's similar. It's like no man or woman can kill you. No, no one in one room. No animal can kill you. So you know, he's living life. He's being a tyrant. And then Vishnu, the god, he changes into this avatar, which is like half man, half lion. And he comes and then he kills him in the middle of two rooms. So he's standing in a doorframe. So he's not in one room. and He's neither man nor woman nor animal. So he's everything at once. Nice. Guys. That's a fun one. Because <laughs> he also found like multiple workarounds. Yeah. There's one that's like sort of similar in Norse mythology mm-hmm. where... Um, there's, like, a prophecy or something that Baldur's going to die. I don't remember. For some reason, they're, like, worried about Baldur's health. And so his mom goes around and gets, like, every, like, species of everything to promise that they won't harm Baldur. And then Loki kills him with mistletoe, which the mom, like, forgot to get to promise that it wouldn't kill him because it's, like, not harmful. It's just, like, some random plan. And he's like, I shall make a dart out of this bush. (laughs) Anyway, also, I still think it's super weird that the movie left out the line where they explain that they take the tree branches to hide how many people are in the army. Because now it just looks like they took some random branches. But, like, there is a reason. (laughs) And they just didn't say it. Oh, no. Two seconds over our time limit. Yeah. <laughs> it's, too long. it's too long. It's too long. I feel like now with the Batman movie coming out, we've got to just accept that movies are three hours long now. Yeah. How long was Bo is Afraid? Because that movie that was felt hours four long. hours long. That was three hours long. Um, that was rough. Of nonsense. I hated that. <laughs> but they should start bringing back intermissions. Um, yeah, like, if you're gonna make a three-hour-long movie, 
at an intermission. Yeah. Please. Have the people come in and sell the ice cream and, you know. Yeah. yeah this used to, when going to the movies was a much bigger deal. From what I've read, they used to do this. They yeah. would bring down a curtain over the screen and you would, it was like a play. You had an intermission and you ate ice cream or got a drink or whatever and came back and watched the rest. So it would be kind of fun to bring that back, actually. We should. We, we should, should do it. We should make a petition. <laughs> no one listens to our opinion. No. <laughs> <laughs> movie execs are like, how dare you try to pause our movies? <laughs> Although they might think, ooh, we could make money off the ice cream. Mm, so, that's true. Yeah, it could work. Gotta that's play so. into that capitalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can't beat it. Use it. Right. <laughs> I'm mean, gonna, I think we also just wanted to point out the casting in this film because we have people of color um playing some of the ty- uh, like main characters which was it's always just fun to see representation especially in like uh, in Shakespeare plays because like you know they're so universal and like so many people know about them it's just it's nice it's yeah nice. yeah and if you can get Denzel Washington get Denzel Washington mm-hmm. I mean that's yeah Literally, who would ever complain about Denzel Washington being in a Shakespeare movie? Like, obnoxious. Like, just cast him. But it is an interesting choice because they, you know, are either inviting the audience to think, oh, we're not supposed to notice, Mm -hmm. or they're inviting the audience precisely to notice. And I think when it's someone as well-known as Denzel Washington, the audience is, you know, going to be hyper-aware. So it's interesting that it could still have the seduction of that terrible idea that is colorblindness, but it's not going to Right. Yeah. And so people are going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Denzel Washington that he felt as if we should be past the point of talking about diversity as if it were a special thing. You know, that was an interesting response. Yeah. Not He wasn't saying it's not an important thing. He was saying, couldn't we get past talking about it as Something an unusual thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, couldn't we get used to the idea that this is a thing that happens mm-hmm. rather than taking each occasion of it and saying, oh, look, diversity. Right? Yeah. So, but. I can understand. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. You want to get weary of constantly having to say, yeah, we're here, we've been here a while. You know? <laughs> we're going to continue to I be personally here. have been in a lot of films where you would have expected to see a white guy, you know. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I think it was, he was courteous about it, but I think mm-hmm. he really wanted to say maybe we shouldn't mark each of these as if it were the first time. Because yeah. it will keep being the first time, in a mm-hmm. sense. That's how I understood that. So. No, that makes sense. So it was certainly not a call for colorblindness, it was a no. call for accepting that diversity is here it's, it's, and happens. And, and it's not leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I also like that it was a lot of the main characters too. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. just Denzel Washington. Yep. It was Corey Hawkins as Macduff mm-hmm. and Moses Ingram as Lady Macduff, um, as well as a lot of the like random like people, the, yeah. the people, you know, <laughs> the people, the people, <laughs> the extras. Yeah, like the the background yeah. knights, yeah, and people who's in a castle. I don't know. Whoever fits. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so every episode, we rate the movies we watch on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of queer representation and also just, like, how much we generally enjoyed the movie. So, on a scale uh, from 1 to 10 of queer representation of this movie, um, I'm going to give it a 3 because I feel like it. Um, I have no textual evidence to support this, but they are gay and I can prove it. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to give it like a two, but I... I need clarity. One is good, right? No. 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 Ten is good. Okay. Okay. 
But now I kind of want to give it, like, it the been before we did our podcast episode, I would have given it two. But now I kind of want to bump it up, like, one, like, three or 3.5, just because of our discussion about, you know, the witches and um, how they're, like, three bodies in one and that kind of, like, the three different energies. Like, I'd like to interpret that as being more gender queer than perhaps I interpreted it, like, way before we talked, so. <laughs> yeah. I would be inclined to even go higher and give it a four or a five because I think what it does with marriage is that but my understanding of queer is not limited to gay. So that's true. Um, yeah. I think queering something like marriage, um, having the best marriage rest on the worst acts mm-hmm. is a nice pushback against a lot of the norms of heterosociality. Mm-hmm. So I'm always happy to see that. Mm-hmm. This is why you're a professor. You have like thoughts about things. <laughs> you're like, I feel And I was just vibes. like, I don't know, I think they're gay. <laughs> Our head cannons. Yeah. <laughs> Um, to me, Lady Macbeth is gay. I have no textual evidence for this. Um, my only support is that all of my friends agree with me. It's <laughs> good, strong support when you're with your friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my source, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen that meme? That's like my source. It came to me in a dream. Yeah. It's very that. Mm-hmm. Okay, on a scale of 1 to 10 of how much I enjoyed this movie, I'm going to give it, like, a 9 out of 10. I don't know. I love Macbeth. I already talked about this. I have, like, an unhealthy obsession with this play for no reason. It's just so dramatic. It has every possible, like, thing that makes something, like, over-the-top dramatic. There are ghosts. There are witches. There's prophecy. There's treason. There's standing dramatically on a cliff. What else could he need? Honestly. Literally nothing. <laughs> like, it's perfect. Um, I was also going to give it a 9 out of 10 because I really enjoyed it. I had fun. Um, I really liked the movie because of the aesthetic as well. So, yeah. I'll give it an 8, but some of that's just because I get tired of Shakespeare. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I agree. I mean, it's aesthetically beautiful. Yeah. And it's, I think, done really, really well. So an 8 is high for me for a Shakespeare movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting to hear that you like are tired of Shakespeare movies, but you still like this one. Yeah, it's like visually pleasing. Oh, I go through long periods where I say, "Do not take me to a Shakespeare play. Do not take me to a Shakespeare movie. I need to rest from Shakespeare." Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so this movie, especially coming out when it did, was it surprised me by the fact that I actually wanted to watch it. Mm-hmm. So I started it out of sense of duty, and then I thought, "No, I actually want to watch this." So this this one came through. That's so good. So. This is going to be the last episode of this podcast for roughly two to three months because I will be in the middle of the desert with no Wi-Fi for two to three months. Um, unfortunately, there is nothing I can do about this. Also, if you are one of the listeners that is my close friend, do not try to email me or message me on Instagram or <laughs> use any Wi-Fi whatsoever to try to talk to me. I will be in the desert. <laughs> I'll write you letters. At the end of... Every episode, we also connect um, our next episode's film to the film that we watched this time. So our connection this time is Witchcraft. Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti.